America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day that is an anniversary of for one of the great disasters of the 21st century, at least so far. That, of course, is the war in Ukraine. President Biden gave what has been described as a fiery speech in Warsaw, Poland. He got a very warm response from uh, the Polish government, uh, from the Polish people, as far as people can gather. But there's also a speech today, unusual speech, by President Trump, who talks about why he believes that had he continued as president, this war never would have started because of his personal relationship with Putin. Uh, nothing uh, warlike would have happened. We will hear those various speeches, plus the highlights and lowlights of Vladimir Putin delivering his State of the Nation address. Again, the one-year anniversary of the beginning of the war. Uh, there is also a, an, an address here in the United States toward one of our greatest problems, the problem of loneliness. Uh, there have been a series of reports and even a statement from the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, about the way that isolation and loneliness particularly impacts teens. And there is one expert who has written persuasively in the New York Times and elsewhere that the only way to solve the problem of loneliness is more sex. And uh, she is uh, her, herself someone who has written on a, a variety of psychological and sexual issues. We'll be speaking to Magdalena Taylor. We'll also be speaking later to Juan Williams, who is talking uh, about the emergence of what he considers to be a dangerous new uh, cult that has emerged. What is the cult? It is one that follows the former president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, as a cult leader. Is that fair? We will be speaking with Juan Williams about that. And we'll also be speaking about a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center, uh, Adrian Karadnitsky, who says that the real question about Russia is can it ever become a normal European nation? And uh, then another column by a Ukrainian columnist in the New York Times who says that the problem with Russia and Ukraine is that Russia is not, never has been a normal nation. It has always been an empire that has tried to subjugate uh, non-Russian peoples to its will. Uh, we will be getting to that and uh, the threat to intellectual freedom. Uh, now a claim by uh, a host on MSNBC that intellectual freedom has uh, been threatened by <laughs> Ron DeSantis. And he's only the governor of Florida, but uh, he certainly wants to be more. Plus uh, new news about yet another very popular Republican governor, from a much smaller state who seems to be determined to jump into the presidential race. 1-800-955-1776 is our phone number. And uh, let's uh, go first to President Biden speaking in Poland. And uh, what uh, President Biden said in his address, which was um, 
clear-cut and decisive and uncompromising in terms of its continued support for Ukraine. Uh, what he said was this about uh, Vladimir Putin and his thought processes. Clip one. President Putin ordered his tanks to roll in Ukraine. He thought we would roll over. He was wrong. The Ukrainian people are too brave. America, Europe, a coalition of nations from the Atlantic to the Pacific, we were too unified. Democracy was too strong. Instead of an easy victory, he perceived and predicted. Putin left with burnout tanks and Russia's forces in, delay, in, dis, in disarray. He thought he'd get the Finlandization of NATO. Instead, he got the NATOization of Finland and Sweden. He thought NATO would fracture and divide. Instead, NATO is more united and more unified than ever, than ever before. He thought he could weaponize energy to crack your resolve, Europe's resolve. Instead, we're working together to end Europe's dependence on Russian fossil fuels. He thought autocrats like himself were tough and leaders of democracy were soft. And then he met the iron will of America and the nations everywhere that refused to accept the world governed by fear and force. He found himself at war with a nation led by a man whose courage would be forged in fire and steel, President Zelensky. Uh, and a big warm applause, of course, for President Zelensky, who had just spent uh, the last 24 hours basically walking all around Kiev boldly, considering that Kiev is under attack with the president of the United States. The, um, uh, the, ongoing, the ongoing battle here is one that uh, was just boosted uh, by a non-NATO nation, but one very closely aligned with the United States, the nation of Japan, where the, um, uh, the new prime minister... Uh, they're authorizing $5.5 billion of Japanese military aid for Ukraine. Now, why is that? What does Japa, Japan have to do with Ukraine? And the answer is everything, because they fear a Chinese incursion into Taiwan or a Chinese attack on uh, Korea or a North Korean attack on Japan. And the idea is that as much as anything that we've experienced, certainly in the last generation, since the original fall of the old evil empire, since the end of Maoism, it's so incredibly clear. And this is very frustrating to me because it's, it's so clear that we, we even began discussing it with our six-year-old granddaughter uh, last night, and uh, there are some times, and again, she doesn't have to be exposed to the details of it. I don't want her to know some of the horrible, unspeakable things that were done to civilians in Ukraine, but to know that there is such a thing as a fight between right and, and wrong, and in this case, the United States is unequivocally, and it's, it's not even a, a political issue. People are saying, well, Tucker Carlson doesn't agree. Okay, Tucker Carlson doesn't get elected anywhere. And people who do get elected, like uh, Mitch McConnell, who is the Republican leader of the Senate, and uh, by the way, efforts to overturn 
or to get rid of Mitch McConnell as a Republican leader, like led by President Trump, all of those would-be Republican candidates who were going to boot Mitch McConnell from his Senate post, they all lost. McConnell has been also incredibly clear and refreshing. So what is it that um, that Putin says in response? Uh, we will get to that. He today has suspended Moscow's participation in the last remaining nuclear arms control pact with the United States, announcing the move today in a bitter speech in which he made clear he would not change his strategy in the war in Ukraine. Putin emphasized, however, that Russia isn't withdrawing from the pact yet. And hours after his address, the foreign ministry said Moscow would respect the treaty's caps on nuclear weapons. It also said Russia would continue to exchange information about test launches of ballistic missiles per earlier agreements with the United States. In other words, if he's suspending participation in the last remaining nuclear arms control pact, but he's not pulling out of it, what is the message exactly? Uh, we will get to Vladimir Putin's message, to a more from Biden's message, and to the eagerly awaited uh, message from a front-running Republican candidate for president. His name is Donald Trump, and he had quite a bit to say. That and more coming up here on The Medved Show. Makes no sense. The Michael Medved Show. Michael Medved show uh, dueling speeches from uh, people who would love to lead the world. Uh, Donald J. Trump with a tape that he has made warning of the prospect of World War Three, which he believes only he can help to avert. Uh, Joe Biden talking about the resolve of the United States and our allies to uh, stand by Ukraine and their courageous battle for preserving their independence and really preserving world order. And then, of course, uh, Vladimir Putin with um, his uh, pledge to uh, prevent the West from uh, imposing unlimited, unbridled power uh, and attacking the West as responsible for the struggle and the war in Ukraine. Uh, by the way, anyone who agrees with uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, give us a call, 1-800-955-1776. We won't pay the international charges, but uh, if you live here in the United States, it's free. Uh, okay. Uh, President Biden uh, speaking in Warsaw in what has been described, I think, aptly as a fiery speech. And, yes, there were the verbal flubs and he didn't say Finlandization right. Okay, uh, but the message of his speech was clear, and it was clear in terms of uh, describing the resolution of the United States to stand by uh, a, a, a nation which, with a struggling democracy 
that was determined uh, not to allow its own conquest and extermination. Here is um, President Biden from uh, Warsaw. This is clip two. Appetites of the autocrat cannot be appeased. They must be opposed. Autocrats only understand one word. No, no, no. No, you will not take my country. No, you will not take my freedom. No, you will not take my future. And I'll repeat tonight what I said last year in the same place. A dictator bent on rebuilding an empire will never be able to ease the people's love of liberty. Brutality will never grind down the will of the free. And Ukraine, Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia. Never. And uh, the Polish president, Andrzej Duda, uh, through a translator, uh, commended President Biden for his stand, for his uh, firm rhetoric, uh, even though he, <laughs> he used the word eased when uh, the text of his speech said he raced, I'm pretty sure. But, okay, this is the president of uh, Poland uh, speaking to in support of President Biden from Warsaw. This is clip three. The president of the United States, the leader of the free world, Joe Biden, has made a spectacular gesture. Yesterday in the morning, he stood in Kiev against all expectations. He put his foot on Ukrainian soil where war is raging. He demonstrated that a free world and its leader is not afraid of anything. He showed that Ukraine is not alone, that it is supported by the most powerful state in the world and by the most powerful armed forces in the world, that it is supported by the North Atlantic Alliance, and that this is a serious support which will not fade away. And uh, the way it's covered in CNN, President Joe Biden vowed in a fiery speech Tuesday today to continue supporting Ukraine as it enters a second year of war, repeatedly denouncing Russian President Vladimir Putin and promising the United States would not waver even as the conflict enters a new uncertain phase. In his second major address in less than a year from the same Polish castle, Biden said Western resolve was stiffening in the face of Putin's assault on democracy. He used his trip to the Ukrainian capital a day earlier as evidence that the democracy of the world are growing stronger in the face of autocracy. One year ago, the world was bracing for the fall of Kyiv. Well, I've just come from a visit to Kyiv, and I can report Kyiv stands strong. Kyiv stands proud, it stands tall, and most important, it stands free, the president proclaimed. In remarkably pointed terms, they write, Biden accused Putin of atrocities and said his attempt to subjugate a foreign nation won't succeed. President Putin's craven lust for land and power will fail, Biden said, one of the ten separate times he singled out the Russian leader by name in his address. The speech came just hours after Putin delivered a major speech to the Russian Federal Assembly, again falsely claiming that Ukraine and its allies in the West started the war and offering no signs that he is willing to pull back in his ambitions. Now, this idea of who started the war, this is, this is not 
a, a tough case for the United States to make. Uh, there was absolutely no invasion of Russian soil. And part of what is important here is a Russian president, the president who preceded Vladimir Putin, Boris Yeltsin, signed an agreement with the United States and with the leadership of Ukraine and with Great Britain. They signed an agreement in Budapest uh, years ago before Putin came to, ta to power, recognizing Ukraine's boundaries and recognizing Ukraine's independence. And in return for that recognition, Ukraine gave up its nuclear missiles that it had control of. And this is one of those things where you say that Ukraine started the war and basically it's a position that President Trump is getting awfully close to. Uh, President Trump spoke uh, today and uh, prepared a, a very attention-getting World War III invoking uh, tape, videotape for his Truth Social, social Media Network. And here is what President Trump sounded like this morning. World War III has never been closer than it is right now. We need to clean house of all of the warmongers and America last globalists and the deep state, the Pentagon, the State Department, and the national security industrial complex. One of the reasons I was the only president in generations who didn't start a war is that I was the only president who rejected the catastrophic advice of many of Washington's generals, bureaucrats, and the so-called diplomats who only know how to get us into conflict, but they don't know how to get us out. For decades, we've had the very same people, such as Victoria Nuland and many others just like her, obsessed with pushing Ukraine toward NATO, not to mention the State Department support for uprisings in Ukraine. Okay, State Department support for uprising in Ukraine, what, what he's talking about is something that nearly all Ukrainians are very proud of, which was the Orange Revolution. It was resisting a rigged election, rigged by the Kremlin. President Trump ought to be able to relate to that. Coming up, uh, Adrian Karatnitsky about Russia's failure as a modern nation. Coming up. Medved Show. It is an honor to uh, welcome to the show Adrian Karatnitsky, who is a non-resident senior fellow with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. He um, uh, is also the president and executive director, was for uh, many years, for 11 years, of uh, Freedom House, during which time he developed a program of assistance to democratic and human rights movements in Belarus, Serbia, Russia and Ukraine. Uh, Adrian has contributed frequently to the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, uh, the Financial Times, to Foreign Affairs Magazine, to the International Herald Tribune, and so forth. He's written an important piece that um, uh, is called Can Russia Ever Become a Normal European Nation? Uh, Adrian, thank you very much for joining us. A pleasure. Glad to be with you. Okay. First of all, your argument, 
which is really one of those sit up straight in your seat and pay attention arguments, is very profound, which is that the only way Russia can really win this war and gain from it is if Ukraine wins and Russia loses. Why is that? How will that change the Russian worldview? Well, let's start with uh, history. And, uh, you know, from the time of the Russian Empire, from, say, Peter the Great to today, Russia has had only one interval where uh, of about two or three years of uh, its existence where anti-imperial views and Russian domestically oriented patriotism was a sort of an important political trend. And that was in the first two or three years of the Yeltsin administration. And very quickly, the old established order, the people from the security services and others began to you know, come back and force their way back into the system. So three years out of, you know, 350, that's not a very good track track record for, uh, uh, you know, uh, saying that there is some kind of anti-imperial or domestically oriented, uh, uh, you know, uh, consciousness within the Russian public. So that's the first thing. But, the, but then if we look at history, we also see that in the case of Poland, in the 19th century, Russians frankly thought that Poles could be made into Russians. They had worked out an education program through the Tsarist Minister of Education, a Russian count, uh, that would get, was going to make Russians out of Poles, even with all the big differences between them. So Russia and three rebellions by the Poles and then the resistance of solidarity and all this, I think it, it kind of cured them of the idea that Poles could be part of Russia uh, proper. And I think Ukraine was relatively quiescent uh, between, say, the Cossack period when they had some autonomous and independent rule, and that was crushed by Catherine the Great, basically, and the period of, uh, you know, uh, the 19, you know, the Russian Revolution, when pressure for independence reemerged. So, like 150 years, everything was quiet. So, in that period, Russians felt very comfortable that Ukrainians weren't a different people because they weren't proving that they were different people. But for the last hundred years, Ukrainian consciousness was, and patriotism and national pride was developing. And today, you know, about Putin, of course, is trying to negate it and saying that they're all one people. But it's very clear from the way Ukrainians are fiercely fighting that they're not one people. And one of the reasons they're not one people is democratic uh, values and democratic. Uh, traditions, Ukrainians have preserved over the last 30 years, uh, a, you know, a really co corrupt and perfect, but a relatively democratic system where they can get rid of the people who rule them by the ballot box, or if the ballot box is someone's cheating at the ballot box, they mobilize. It's a very citizen-oriented, civically engaged society, which is very different, and it doesn't defer to the top dog. It respects some of its leaders, but it, but it doesn't you know, hold them in awe. Even Zelensky, who is, I think at this point, beloved because he's been a very effective leader at a time of war, Ukrainians still will jaw about him, and they won't speak of him with, with, with reverence. They'll speak of him with respect, but more as a kind of an equal. You know, I'm a citizen. He's a citizen. He's doing a job for me as president. And I think those, those are the kinds of political 
cultural differences that uh, have emerged. And as a result, if Ukraine persists and 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 tell, you know and defeats Russia, reclaims some of its territory, it'll be telling Russia, this is where you begin and where you end. And the Russian people, I think, seeing this resistance over time, and I think beginning to understand that the Ukrainians are indeed a different nation, uh, will win themselves in the same way that they did of the idea that Poles could be made into Russians. They'll win themselves of the idea. And it'll take a long time. And, you know, we can talk a little bit about, you know, how empires, we... uh, you know, even when they lose, they, they, they take another shot at what they've lost. So we didn't, like in 1812, that was, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a relapse, a relapse into trying to get, crawl back into, uh, uh, you know, the United States and to reclaim uh, colonial, uh, colonial dependencies. So empires, uh, you know, it, it's kind of like a, if you know the limb, you have this limb syndrome. So Russia, even when it loses Ukraine, will still have a phantom limb syndrome for Okay, let me, uh, Adrian, Adrian, let me let me ask you a question very directly, because uh, today uh, President Putin and President Trump uh, both seem to have a one similar theme, which was that the it was the United States and the West that started this war in just a, a very brief moment that we have left. What's the best answer to that to make clear that it was actually Putin's decision to push this war? not the work of globalists in Washington, D.C. Yeah, the, the people of Ukraine went out on the streets in 2014 because they saw their future going down the toilet, meaning their their corrupt president was switching and making a deal to not integrate into Europe, but to integrate with Russia. And it was their expression of the popular will. The president, after 100 people were killed in the streets, fled the country and the parliament, including members of that president's party, by an overwhelming constitutional majority, voted to remove him, from an absent president, from office. So it wasn't a coup. There was no U.S. hand in it. Uh, and, uh, and it was the people. It was half a million people on the streets of, of Kiev and hundreds of thousands in other streets that, that did this. And when that happened, Putin saw an opportunity because, like, before they stabilized the government and took over all the levers of power, he grabbed Crimea and he started a bunch of insurgencies in the south and east of Ukraine. And that's what started everything in, in uh, 2014. It was it was basically Putin seeing an opportunity uh, when a when the public had removed a Ukrainian president through legitimate constitutional means. Well, I think the re the real claim is that the actual invasion of a year ago was provoked by Ukraine coming closer to NATO and European Union membership. Uh, was that a deliberate provocation by the U.S.? Well, you know, look, European Union membership is a, tra it's a trade at, you know, standards organization that doesn't have a, a built national security component. There is no European army as yet, although they've been talking about it. But in terms of NATO, there was no... NATO on offer, uh, and maybe now the possibility of Ukraine joining NATO because of this alienation of the West and this conflict is much higher than it was before the invasion. First, the Ukrainians weren't planning to invade anything. Before Putin invaded for the last two years, 
two people on the Russian side of the Ukrainian divide, on the Russian control side, two civilians died per year in uh, 2022, uh, 2021, and 2020. It was a low-intensity, occasionally some... And and again, the people can see the film, the video of the actual Russian invasion, which was a real thing, not an imaginary construct. Adrian Karatnitsky, appreciate your contribution in Foreign Affairs magazine. It's posted at our website at Michael Medved. Michael Medved show the one thing that Vladimir Putin seems determined to do uh, in terms of his oratory his rhetoric the whole theme of the speech he gave today is is not only to rally to his support uh, the people of Russia where there have been extraordinarily profound indications that a very substantial at least minority of the Russian people do not support this war at all. And in fact, there have been a number of stories of Russians and Russian nationals who have gone over to join the Ukrainians in fighting for their liberty and in fighting for civilization, basically. But uh, Putin in particular is also trying to reach out to American public opinion. Uh, The one thing that is uncontestably true is that in the recent elections, going back to 2016, the Russians have uh, tried to influence American public opinion. And not in the direction of one side or another necessarily, but simply to create chaos and to create division and, and to... Uh, try to undermine America's resolve. That's why what he says when he speaks is that he is not attacking America. He's not attacking the West. He's attacking the evil elites who actually lead and control America. That, uh, In other words, he makes the case, which is absurd on the face of it, that Russia is a more democratic nation than the United States. Because in in Russia, they have these free and fair elections. And here in the United States, we have elections that are rigged by the evil globalist elites. Here was Vladimir Putin in uh, translation in uh, part of his State of the Nation uh, address here on the anniversary of the beginning of the Ukraine war. Listen. Six. The goal of the West is unbridled power. They have already spent more than $150 billion to supply weapons to the Kiev regime. Just compare, according to the Economic Cooperation and Development Organization, to help the poorest countries in the world, G7 allocated in 2020 and 2021 some $60 billion. Do you see this? They spent 154, the war and the poorest countries, allegedly they are taking care about, they have allocated only 60. And they demand to follow them blindly, those countries who they pay to, and how they can talk about sustainability, about the environmental development. Where has it, has it gone? 
and they are not stopping this flow of money to support war, and they are spending more money on coup in the other countries all across the world. Okay, they're spending money for coups in other countries all across the world. Has that been uh, the case in with recent elections around the world? Uh, the and the idea that uh, contrasting 150 billion dollars for the war with 60 billion dollars for the poorest countries. What exactly is Russia given to the poorest countries in the world? And uh, this, of course, is not the first example of uh, Russia. Uh, spending an untold amount of money and a huge percentage of their national budget, because they are not a prosperous country, uh, in to buy equipment and to bury the up to 200,000 people that they have lost in fighting this war. And the responsibility for the war? Well, this is uh, Vladimir Putin's view. Uh, clip five. Responsibility for fomenting the Ukrainian conflict for its escalation and for the increasing number of victims lies entirely with Western elites. And of course, the current regime in Kyiv for which the Ukrainian people are essentially strangers. The current regime in Kyiv where the Ukrainian people are essentially strangers. That's why there has been so much support for the Russians from the Ukrainian people. I mean, the yes, there have been many uh, Ukrainian people who have run away from the path of war, but they have been received, uh, at least temporarily, in Poland primarily. Uh, Romania has also taken a a great number of Ukrainian refugees, but the idea that the uh, that the initial purpose of the war. Uh, Putin said, was the decapitation of the Zelensky regime. And the entire fantasy, this has continued and continued and continued with the idea that uh, the Zelensky regime is simply a puppet of the West. And uh, again, when you look at the courage and the determination, which has been reported all over the world and is very, very clear how else do you explain the fact that with a a, a nation that uh, triple the population, more than triple the population of Ukraine, that Russia has been fought to a virtual uh, standstill? This is uh, Jen Stoltenberg, the chief of NATO, uh, speaking about the importance of uh, th this current moment one year into a a decisive and extraordinarily important world-changing war, a clip seven. We are also increasingly concerned that China may be planning to provide lethal support uh, for Russia's war. Putin must not win. That would show that aggression works and force is rewarded. It will be dangerous for our own security and for the whole world. Okay, and uh, the the alternative, uh, there's a terrific column uh, by a Ukrainian novelist and poet named Oksana Zubushko. And she writes, Russia will not become a democracy until it falls apart. That's because Russia is not really a nation state. 
but the same pre-modern multi-ethnic empire living on geographic expansion and resource looting as 300 years ago and is thus doomed to reproduce again and again under whatever ideological cover the same prison ward-like political structure that alone keeps it together. Uh, one intellectual holdover from the imperialistic 19th century is the idea that preserving the Russian Empire would be less catastrophic in terms of humanitarian consequences than recognizing the right to life of dozens of peoples whose lot under Moscow's rule was never anything other than uh, dogged survival under the threat of extinction. This prejudice helped the empire to survive twice in the 20th century in 1921 that was right after the revolution and after the Russian Civil War, and in 1991, right after the fall of the communist regime. It is high time to rethink it. Looked at closely, this war on Moscow's part is a monstrously enlarged version of the Ukrainian purges of the 1970s, Operation Block, as it was known, to the KGB files. Same language, same techniques, the only difference is the scale. Those purges were selective and unostentatious, whereas nowadays each of the thousands of Russian rockets that have so far hit our cities howls the same message. Speak human. What she talked about was in the bad old days before Ukrainian independence. It was against the law to speak Ukrainian. And uh, when people, uh, uh, for instance, police officers would hear people in Kiev or elsewhere in Ukraine, speaking Ukrainian, they would be told, speak human, because the Ukrainians were supposed to be subhuman. This is, uh, our cities uh, held the same message, speak human, at the highest possible pitch. Ukrainians respond with the glorious phrase from the defenders of Snake Island, we will survive the Russian Federation just as we survived the Soviet Union. And then she concludes, if there could be any positive result found in the 12 months of this horrible war and tens of thousands of people murdered, raped, and mutilated, and millions of lives ruined, and the best black soil on earth littered with mines, and innumerable treasures of cultural heritage turned to debris, it would be that we Ukrainians have all together, in a united effort of resistance, proved that non-Russian lives matter. It is good news, for that was not the case before, certainly not in the past century. It gives all those who speak human, with no question, with no, no quotation marks, hope for the future. Coming up for that future, has uh, American politics been taken over by a cult? What are we talking about? We'll speak to Juan Williams, coming up in This Greatest Nation on God's Green Earth.